Extraordinary Athletes Doing Extraordinary Things, featuring para-athlete Michael Dream Chaser Smith. Everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Runwave Podcast. I am your host, Kim. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome to the show. If you are a return listener, welcome back. I truly appreciate you listening week after week. If you didn't know, it is Black History Month for the entire month of February, although I celebrate Black History 365 days a year. But we are continuing with the series of extraordinary athletes who do extraordinary things. And I had the wonderful pleasure to chat with Michael Smith. Mr. Dream Chaser. <laughs> he is a para-athlete who has a amputated arm. He participates in the sport of triathlon and he tells me his harrowing story of how he became an amputee and how he got into the sport of triathlon. And trust me, this story will have you on the edge of your seats. So let's get into All it. All right. So I have two-time Ironman, four-time I'm Ironman 70.3 finisher, triathlete, and para-athlete, Michael Smith. Welcome to the show, Mike. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Welcome again. We've been trying to do this show for an hour, people. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's been crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we got if it only, now, so. Yes. If only you yeah. know the technical difficulties that go down behind the scene. Man, right. But how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Blessed and, you know, just making every day count. That sounds good. So where are you originally from? So I was born in Amarillo, Texas, which is the northern panhandle, um, but raised practically all my life from the like, age of five on in Dallas, Texas. So I just claim Dallas. I don't really, you know, speak of Amarillo too much. You don't hear a lot of people from Amarillo these days. Really? Why am I thinking of like aardvarks and <laughs> hay bales uh, when I think of Amarillo? That's exactly what it is. Like, yeah. yeah. The, well, the most famous thing out there is the Cadillac Ranch. I think that's out there. You ever heard of that? No. And then the uh, the big Texan steak, the, like the biggest steak or something. Like, I don't know. Man, ain't nothing in Amarillo. Nothing. <laughs> That's why you probably move, right? Your parents are like, we yeah. out of here. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And the, at the age of five, I was still like, yes. <laughs> yeah. So what part of the country are you in right now? Uh, I'm in, uh, right now I'm like in Castle Rock, Colorado, but I'm currently moving to Colorado Springs, Colorado, which is right down the road. It's about an hour down the road. So. Okay. And what's prompting yeah. your new move? Um, so my goal, so my whole intent to come to Colorado Springs was to train in altitude. Mm. Um, and then not only that, but you know, the Olympic training center is here. Um, so my goal for 2021 it, or 2022 is to make the, uh, the residence team. So that's where, I mean, you know, that's where everything is. So, you know, with my goals, I have specific goals and specific benchmarks that I want to meet and you know being close to that place is one of them so yeah so what's the residence team 
Uh, it's basically um, it's the it's people that's on the national team and you live on the Olympic Training Center campus, oh. um, and you get it's like it's like the best of the world. Like you get the best of everything. You get your your chefs, your your training, your coaching, your recovery, your housing. Oh. Um, your 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 races are paid for. Your travel is paid for. I mean, it's 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 a legit situation. You know what I mean? Like it's a it's a situation that any Olympic athlete would wanna wanna be in if they, you know if it was possible. Sounds like a dream. I would love to have a chef one day. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty fortunate though. Like I have I have a friend that's a chef. She um owns a restaurant and she does all my. Uh, meal prepping for me every Sunday and really? so I don't yeah I don't do any cooking she just brought it over the other day and I mean they're, they're like I don't know if you ever pay attention to my Facebook or my Instagram they're like gourmet meals and yeah so so you're set for the whole week all you have to do is throw it in the microwave or the oven and you're good to go that's it that is that's it dope. Yeah. So what is your, your background in sports? Did you, were you into sports as a youngster? I was. So um, just, I guess, the typical Texan, we're huge in football and basketball. So I played football, played basketball, ran track, and that was the gist of it. Um, yeah, just that was it. And then, you know, went to college and went into the army and still continued to play basketball in the army and, um, you know, still ran every single day of my life in the army. Uh, but it's funny that you never, like, I've been running in the army for like the past 23 years. And then when I got into triathlon and running marathons and stuff, like you realize that you don't really know how to run. Like it was crazy <laughs> to me. When I, yeah, when I got into like endurance running, I was like, Oh, this would be easy. I've been, running 10, 15 miles my entire career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. no. It's a, it's a, it's totally a different, different world. Yeah, mm-hmm. different world. Yeah. So you joined the Army after college? So I j- actually joined right after high school, but I did like mm-hmm. the college prep program. So it gave me an opportunity to do both. So I was doing both. Um, and then after that, I just, you know, stayed in the Army because you know, after college, that's like a this college is like a business. You know, you come out of college mm-hmm. in debt, and you need to find something really fast. And mm-hmm. the army was paying for my education, and I didn't have a lot of debt, but I also wanted to find something that I felt like um, was worthy of my time and get paid for. It. And the army was it. And I told myself I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll do this five year contract, and yeah, here I am, twenty three years later, still in. So. That's interesting because we know about the army, but I don't think I really know how it works on the back end. So everyone that comes in has a contract for a certain amount of time. Yeah. So when you join the military initially, you, so you pick your job and a lot of times based on the, based on the the job that you pick determines the length of the contract that you can pick. So like, if you pick like nursing or something like that, just know like that's a long-term commitment. I believe it's like a six year commitment, like off the rip. Um, but something like infantry or something lower grade um, that doesn't require a lot of schooling or a degree, um, you could do anywhere from two to like four years. Um, 
I did five just because I wanted that. I wanted that experience and I wanted that background. So when I did get out, I can say, yeah, I did this particular job for five years versus two. Um, and I knew that would speak volume. So that's what I chose to do. So what was your specialty in the army? So initially my specialty was, uh, I came in as, uh, artillery. So I didn't know, I was just trying to get my school and pay for it. So I just picked anything. And then, mm-hmm. uh, that job led me to go into uh, combat a couple of times. So then I learned really, really quick that maybe I need to change my job and do something a little more technical, a little more serious. So I became a, uh, I became a career counselor for the army. And then I went into recruiting and then I took over recruiting. Like I took over a company in recruiting command. So, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So for those of you that are listening and not watching, although you can't really see anyway, Michael is an amputee. And I, I've, I mean, we've been following each other for a long time, probably through a black triathlete. And, you know, I've, I've always, you know, that's, everyone knows that about you, but I don't think I've ever heard your story of how it happened. So tell me a little bit about that. So, um, I had just like legit moved to, um, Nashville, Tennessee from California. Um, and I took over like the city of Nashville, as far as recruiting, I had assumed that city. Um, and I've been riding motorcycles practically my entire life, kind of grew up on them. And, um, yeah, I was on a highway with a group of other riders one night and this one particular night where I wasn't acting crazy and I wasn't doing anything foolish and wasn't speeding. Mm-hmm. And I just so happened had on all my gear, but this car uh, came on to the on-ramp or entered the on-ramp. And as she was coming, I could see, like I could legit see her. Um, Cause it's like 10 o'clock at night. I could see the glow from her phone into her face, which told me she was on her phone. Mm-hmm. So as she was merging into my lane, uh, I was, honking my horn i was revving my engine and she looked up and it started her you could see as i could see it started her so um of course you know there's cars in front of me so she slows down she you know puts up her hand as to say i'm sorry or whatever and she still managed to hit me like i still to this day people that were with me have no idea how she still hit me but she still she clipped me from behind which forced my back wheel to turn all the way around and it threw me over the guardrail into oncoming traffic. And before I could hit the ground, another vehicle hit me and severed my arm. So I remember all of that vividly because it was like, once I got into the air, it was like, I could see everything. It wasn't like a split second. It probably was a split second, but it it was like time slowed down and I could see everything. And if there was a one particular time where I was, twirling upside down and i just remember being able to see the truck coming it was a white f-150 i was able to see the truck coming and i just remember going man if i hit like i'm i'm probably about to die right now and um it hit me but when it hit me it hit me and it stopped me which in hindsight it's a blessing that that vehicle did hit me the way it did because it had i hit the ground and tumbled i wouldn't be here today um you know i it would hitting that ground going that type of speed 
yeah, it wouldn't have been good because she hit me and I was I was doing at least 75 or 80 because I was a speed runner. So I know I was doing 75 or 80. So but when that car, when the vehicle hit me, it it stopped me and I hit the ground. The only injury I had was to my arm. That was it. That's I mean, and it I think when I, my head hit the ground, it knocked me out. But mm-hmm. I remember coming to and just military experience going to combat. I, I knew I was injured, but I also knew I was in the on the highway so i needed to get off the highway so i was trying to scoot back and i managed to get to like the concrete barrier and i tried to stand up and as i'm standing up i legit put my left hand into my right hand not knowing so my arm is all the way on the other side and i began to like pull it out of my jacket oh, and like mg that's when it just hit me like okay i'm in trouble and i just i pass out and then when I pass out, uh, I think it was probably like seconds later or minutes later, I come back to, and when I come back to, uh, my head was laying in this lady's lap and I, I could feel her tugging on my head, but she was trying to take my helmet off. And um, I remember uh, her talking to me. And uh, once again, I hit that fight or flight and she, you know, I asked her immediately, like, what's wrong? What's like, where am I injured? Cause I had already forgot like my arm and she was like, mm-hmm. you're losing an enormous amount of blood and I'm gonna have to like stop the bleeding. And I told her, I was like, look, look uh, on the inside of my motorcycle jacket. I have a uh, tourniquet. Like I was prepared like that. So it was like a little tourniquet that I had that we used to carry around in combat. Mm-hmm. And I never thought I would use it for me. I thought I would use it for somebody else, mm-hmm. but I had it and she took it out of my jacket and I was about to, <clears throat> excuse me, I was about, I was about to tell her how to use it. And she goes, she was like, I'm a Navy corpsman. A Navy corpsman is a nurse for the wow. Navy. And it's like, soon as she told me that I passed out, like, it was like a relief. It was like, mm-hmm. it was like a relief. I was like, oh, well, I don't have anything. She's trained to do this. So the next time I woke up was like two days later. And by the time I wow. woke up, my mom, my grandma, and my uncle, and they were all there in Nashville. So, yeah. My heart is beating fast. I was like out of a movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. So what was... happened to the, the woman that hit you? Oh, it was a hit and run. She kept going. Hit and run. So my friends that were with me um, saw the whole thing happen. And they said that my motorcycle caused so much debris and smoke um, on the highway that they had to wait to get around it. And by the, they said, by the time they got around my motorcycle, she was off and off the next on-ramp or she was gone, like nowhere to be found. And the crazy thing, it was right in front of the Titan Stadium, which normally that part of the highway or that part of the, yeah, that part of the highway is monitored, there's cameras. And that mm. particular day, all the cameras were down for uh, service. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully karma caught up with her somewhere that yeah. I mean it if if I'm pretty sure like if it didn't, it will. And if it didn't happen to her, it's happened to somebody that she cares about and or it's eating away at her conscience. Like there there could be no way I could live with myself knowing that oh, I possibly I could have hit like, someone and keep somebody. going. I know. Yeah. That's crazy. There's no way. So the woman that was in um, the Navy Corps, she she just stopped, pulled over when she saw the accident. 
Yeah. So the crazy thing. So there's not a Navy base in Kentucky. And she was from Clarksville, Kentucky, or she was from Nashville, and she was driving home on leave, and she saw that she saw it happen, and she stopped. So to this day, like I don't even know who this woman is. I haven't seen her. Like I legit have people. Like I have services looking for this woman. Like I've had the like I've done tons and tons of interviews, and I've had people like watch the interview and be like, oh, I can help you find her. And I have people like professionals legit looking for this woman. So, so what year yeah, was she, this? she saved my life. This was 2011. Oh, so what was your recovery like? Oh man, it was, it was like a roller coaster. Um, so the first thing I remember saying is when I woke up, I noticed that my arm was in a cast and I couldn't really move. And I think I was just sedated and my mom was standing at the end of my bed and I remember raising my head and I asked my mom and I was like, I just have a couple of questions. And I was like, one, I was like, is my face messed up? And she was like, nope, you're still handsome. That was your first question. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yep. And then I was like, two, I was like, two, uh, I was like, um, (laughs) I was like, did I lose any of my manhood? She was like, you're all intact. I was like, oh, we're good. That's a good second question. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, what was your third question? No, I didn't have one. I was I was at ease. <laughs> I was at ease because those are those are the two main things. Like I could have no legs, but as long as my manhood work, I still have a chance on getting married. So I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I so at that point, did you else. know that you were? Well, were you amputated at that point? No. So what happened was, so they tried to save my arm. So, um. Yeah, basically they call it a limb saver. So they basically reconnected my arm and tried to save it. Um, and like I knew, I knew it was a long shot, but like uh, I was legit out of the hospital within a week after that um, accident. Um, so I was at home, and but I was just going through it. Like the pain was just—I wouldn't—I wouldn't put that on my worst enemy that pain was something serious. And um, it was just my, it was just everything. It was just the, tra- the traumatic, you know, injury. It was just a lot. And um, I just was going, so I went back and forth to the hospital, like going back and forth, back and forth because I was having infections and it was like leaking and all types of stuff. And mm. one particular time, um, I just remember sitting on the couch and I looked at my mom and I was like, I think my hand is dead. And she was like, why would you say that? And I was eating. I took my fork and I was like, dink, dink, dink. and it sounded like wood. On like the it hand? sounded like, yeah, I was like, like that. And my mom was like, maybe we should go to the emergency room. And then like they amputated my hand and it wasn't a problem. Cause I was dead. I couldn't even feel it. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't like my first surgery. So each time, like each time I went to the hospital, it, I was facing another amputation. Like it was amputation after amputation after amputation. And I remember the whole time the doctor kept telling me, my surgeon kept telling me, he was like, as long as we can keep it below the elbow, you will have a you will have a chance on living a regular life. So I was like, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna try to keep it below the elbow. Like I went through a series of like six different amputations. And they was doing it little by little, 
trying to catch this. Um, Wait, they were the cutting your arm little by little every time. Yeah, every time. Every time I went to the hospital, every single time they were just amputation, 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 amputation. Then it got to a point where um, I was just below the elbow, and I had my elbow joint, and I had a couple of inches below my elbow. So I, it got to a point where I could bend, like I could bend my elbow, and I was like, oh, like. I have feeling I can be my elbow. So I think we're in the clear. So my mom, uh, we had just found out. So during this whole time, we, I, we have found out that my aunt had got stage four cancer. She found out that she had stage four cancer on the day that I got into my accident, which is crazy. She didn't even yeah. know she was sick. She just went in for a checkup and she's a nurse. She just went in for a checkup. That's it. Mm-hmm. And then they called her back on the day that I got into my accident and told her she had stage four cancer. So my mom was getting ready to go back to Texas to be with my aunt. And um, we go into the hospital and the doctor, like my mom is sitting in a chair and I'm sitting on the edge of the bed and I'm laughing, joking over my mom or whatever. And uh, we're talking about my aunt and he comes in and he was like, hey, so. let me uh let me just let me let me squeeze your arm real quick and i was like bro i still got stitches at the end of this thing like what do you mean he was like yeah he was like i'm just i'm just kind of curious man he was like it's not looking like it was before but i'm just kind of curious so he took his hands and he squeezed at the bottom of my arm what do you do that for man all this no don't tell me don't tell me yeah it was it was disgusting all this stuff came out my mom Ooh. passed out, like she oh. passed out. Yeah. And then he tells me, he goes, yeah, so uh, you got another infection. He was like, I was like, you know what? I was like, take the arm where it initially got severed. Just I'm, I'm over this. I'm past this. Clearly, it's in the limb that we're trying to save. And it hasn't got that far up. And I was like, I'd rather take it where it was initially severed then to keep doing this whole process. I was like, I legit can't take anymore. Like I'm mm-hmm. so through with this. I'm so beyond this right now. So um, we did all of that and they took it. Um, my mom left and that was like the end of the surgeries. Um, and then, yeah, my mom goes home. She's at home for like, a couple of days. Um, my best friend, his name is Sammy, uh, Sammy G. We used to call him G, but really close. He moved in with me, became my roommate to like legit take care of me. Like mm-hmm. he was bathing me as a grown man because I had no function. Um, but I was sitting on the couch and he was cooking. And I just remember raising up and I told him, I was like, hey man, I was like, I think we need to go to the hospital. He was like, wow, what's going on? I was like, bro, I'm dying. He was like, what? I was like, I was like, I'm dying. I was like, I'm not joking. I'm dying. Like, I'm about to die. He was like, nah, man, it's probably a mess. Because by this time, I'm on like a whole bunch of just crazy narcotics. Just, I mean, Mm -hmm. just crazy stuff. So it would make me just, I was zoned out like 95% of the day. So I get up. uh, He follows me to my room because I had a bathroom in my room. And I turn on the shower. All I did was stick my hand in the shower. And I passed out. I woke up that like a day later in the hospital. Um, they didn't know why. But when I came to, the lady was like, 
I have no idea how you're even awake or how you're even talking to me right now because you're supposed to come out of this with brain damage. She was like, your blood pressure was so high that we like we're we were prepping your family to let them know that she was going to have brain damage. And I'm looking I'm looking at like I'm looking at my friend like, man, what else like what else could go wrong? So listen, the guards were looking out for you at that accident and through all of this. Goodness. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm thinking I'm about to go home. Like, I'm thinking like, okay, they're going to give me some blood pressure medicine. They're going to get it down. I'm going to go home. They admit me into the hospital. I stay there for two weeks. And I'm just like, man, I couldn't eat. Like, I, I was like losing weight. So I'm back then, my average walk around weight was like between 205, 210 just doing a lot of working out. In two weeks, I had got down to like 110 pounds in two weeks. What? Yeah. So I knew something was wrong, but I knew something was really wrong when my surgeon and like people from my motorcycle, they were coming to say their goodbyes to me. And I was just like, when my surgeon did that, I was like, wait, wait, wait. I was like, are you like telling me that I may not, I'm not coming out of this? Like I'm dying. He was like, man, Mike, I'm just, he was like, nobody knows what's going on. They were running tons and tons of tests. And he was like, I'm going to tell you, because your doctor won't tell you straight. He was like, man, you're, you're legit. Like you're slowly just, you're going. And I'm like, man, what is going on right now? So Fast forward, my aunt is dying. So she calls me and she goes, hey, nephew, what are you doing? I was like, yeah, man. I was like, I'm going through it. I don't know what's going on. She was like, well, I'm just calling you to tell you that I'm going to take your place. And I was like, you're going to take my place. So immediately, like, just, just, man, it's my mom is in the background. I can hear people crying and I'm just like, like, what do you mean? She was like, yeah, I'm throwing myself a going away party right now. But this is a part of my going away party. Like she threw her, she was throwing herself a party, like mm-hmm. invited friends, family over there because she knew she was gone. She wasn't going to be able to help it. So she was like, I'm supposed to take your place. And I'm just like, and this is all on speakerphone. Like we're crying and I'm just going through it. And um, my doctor comes in. He was like, is everything OK? And I was just like, no, my aunt goes, hey, let me talk to the doctor. So she goes, you need to check my nephew for kidney failure. And like this light bulb, this aha moment came to him. And he was just like, he looked at me and he was just like, I'll be right back. Finish talking to your aunt. So I'm talking to my aunt and she was just like, um, that's my way of taking, like taking your place. And then because she was stage four and she was hospice, like, then she started talking crazy and all this stuff. So I knew it was time for us to get the phone. Mm-hmm. Got the phone. The next morning, they take they do all these tests, and I had renal kidney failure. That that was the whole thing. And the doctor was like, "Had they not caught it when they caught it, I was checking out. Like I was legit was checking out. They put me on dialysis and all this and all that. A couple of days on dialysis, my I think it was my sister or my mom I think it was my mom called me and she was like well your aunt really wants to see you before you go and I was like 
what do you mean? She was like, yeah, like, it's not looking good. We don't think she's going to last another 24 hours. So I called my friend Sammy G. I was like, bro, look on my dresser. I have some spare keys in my top drawer. I was like, I don't want to hear no, I don't want to hear no nonsense. All I need you to do is at eight o'clock tonight when the nurses are doing their switchover and I'm off dialysis by five, I was like, I need you to come sneak me out the hospital. He came up to the hospital, snuck me out, we jumped in my truck, and we drove straight to Dallas. 12 hours, bam. Drove straight to Dallas. On the way there, I'm I'm throwing up out the window. He wants to pull over. I'm like, no, bro, like, let's go. I'm throwing up and all this stuff. And I get there. I legit drive, I drive up to the house. I didn't tell nobody else coming. I drove up to that house. I walked in the door. All my family is like standing in the living room. All my family. Like I walk up, like it was like they seen a ghost. Like I walked in, they kind of just like moved. I walked into where my aunt was. I grabbed her hand and she passed away. Wow. Yeah. I know y'all are listening to this because if you see, you see my face, my every time he's just reliving this story, just wow. It's crazy. So how were you like, how long was this period after the accident, all the surgeries? How long was that? And this was like a couple of months, maybe. Really? Yeah. It was like, bam, 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 bam. Like it was a couple of months, but it felt like days. It felt like everything was moving so fast because I went through all those surgeries and I was standing in the hospital for an extended amount of time. And I was in, like, I was in the hospital for like, almost a month with dealing with my kidney stuff. And then while I'm in Texas, I go to church the next day with my mom and I pass out in church. Like I go to stand up and I pass out. Next thing I know, I'm waking up in the ambulance and the doctor's asking me like, he was like, what's going on with you? Tell me about you. And I was like, well, I just lost my arm. I'm on dialysis in Tennessee. He was like, excuse me. He was like, what'd you say? I was like, yeah, man. I was like, I ain't even supposed to be here. Like, I snuck out the hospital. <laughs> man. Wait, so you were in like, the other hospital now? Yeah. So they drove me to the hospital in the ambulance, and then they airlifted me from Nashville to back to, or from Dallas back to Nashville. Yeah. And my the people at my hospital were like, what like what are you doing, bro? Like you could have died. Like you just got on dialysis. We're trying to save your life. Think of that. You could have killed yourself, but you had to save body yeah. your aunt. Yeah. So. So yeah. two, for two months, how was that like on you mentally? Because we know like the physical was hard, but you know what? It didn't. Like a whole other thing. It didn't even hit me until when you're. It didn't hit me until after I started getting better and I started getting off meds is when it really kind of hit me. Um, I just don't know for the first, I don't know, for like the first six months, maybe I like that six months felt like it just went by so fast, but I was medicated that entire time. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I'm really not, I'm really not having my own thoughts. Like I'm just in a daze, like the entire time. I'm just in a daze. I just, 
I'm telling you, I'll send you an article. In my article, I, a whole bunch of articles, I state like there was a time period where I bought like in the course of a year, I bought like eight cars. Yeah, eight cars. Like I had a hat fetish and I never wore hats before that. I probably went through a series of like five cell phones, changed my number like five times. Like that, those meds had, I was on one. I just, Ooh. it got to the point where like my roommate and my mom, like everybody was like, do not let this dude watch TV because everything he sees, he wants. I saw a truck, a white truck. Like I had a thing with white cars. I saw a white truck. I had to have one. I forced my uncle to go make me to go take me to the dealership and buy a white truck. I bought it. I saw on I saw a white Cadillac, a CTS. It just came out. I went to the Cadillac dealership, bought a Cadillac. I saw a white drop top CLK 350 Benz, and I wanted one. It was a hard top Benz, and that was my first time seeing it. And I wanted one. I went and bought one. I went and bought. Uh, Acura. I went and bought uh, a BMW. I went and bought a Camaro. Like I was just buying cars, like left and right. I don't. I, to this day, I don't even know why. Yeah, I don't. I don't, I don't know. So you were still army at this time, though, right? Yeah, and so yeah. The crazy thing is, is I, I was re- I was in the army, but removed for almost like two almost a year and a half i didn't hear nothing from the army like nobody called to check up on me nobody nothing like i legit went home to dallas tech like i went home to my mom's house so that she could like take care of me mm-hmm. and i was still getting paid nobody said nothing um and how i ended up going to a recovery center in san antonio was my cousin is in the air force and my my mom called my cousin was like, hey, I'm really worried about Michael because he's on these meds and now he's going through this crazy depression and he's drinking while he's on these meds. And like, I feel like something bad is about to happen. So she was like, he's in the army. Like, what can we do? She was like, nobody has called him from the army. And my cousin was like, I thought he was in a like a recovery center for the army. And my mom was like, no, he's been home for like almost a year. So yeah, my cousin told me about this place. I legit, once again, out of my mind, I drive, I get it. I jump in my car the next day. I drive all the way to Kentucky to this place. It's called the warrior transition unit. So when you're injured in the military, this is a place that you go to receive care. Mm-hmm. I drove from Dallas to Kentucky. I walked into that place and I was like, hey, so how do I get taken care of? And they looked at me like, who are you and how did you lose your arm? And I told them, I was like, yeah, I legit live right right down the street in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And I lost it like almost a year and a half ago. And when I told them that, oh, my goodness, like it was like World War Two. I went and talked to the base commander. They was all these people was coming in talking to me interviewing me and was like we don't even know who you are we had no idea this even happened so like of course people were getting fired from where i worked at like because nobody nobody checked on me so did you slip through the cracks like what happened probably i don't know 
I don't, I don't even, I don't even know how that happened. Honestly, I don't know. I know, I don't, I don't want to say they forgot, but. Um, but don't you call them up and say, "Hey, I had an accident. Like, you know, I'm going through well, it." They knew. They so they knew because they came and saw me in the hospital when I initially got hurt. Uh-huh. So they knew. It's not like didn't nobody know. Like my whole command, my command team came and saw me, which is crazy. Like. And G, my roommate, he we worked in the same office, and I would talk to him all the time, and I'd be like, "Bro, is anybody saying anything?" He was like, "Nah, man." And nobody said nothing. I was like, "Well, if they ain't saying nothing, I guess they got it under control." But what happened is they didn't report it up. Mm. They didn't tell anybody. So, yeah. So what happened at the center that you went to? Was it is it like um, a rehab or what is it? Yeah, it's like a, it's basically like a medical treatment center for soldiers like for all for different variations of injuries illnesses things like that um so they ended up they asked me where did i want to go and by this time they're just like you can go anywhere you want man like we'll we'll send you like we owe you so much we you can go wherever you want so the only one in texas was in san antonio plus my cousin lived in san antonio so i was like all right just send me to san antonio so when i got to san antonio um that's when i went through all my treatments and started getting better and getting healthy. And that's where I learned. That's where I kind of like discovered this whole new person that I wanted to be. You know what I mean? And that's when I, I did the rock and roll half, then the rock and roll full. And then that's when I started discovering all these things that I do now. So when did you like go back to work to active duty? How much further down um, the line was that? So, 2015, 2015. So, between 2013 and 2000, so two, it took me almost, it took me almost two and a half to three years to fight to stay on active duty service. So, to see an arm amputee on active duty service is like unheard of. Um, I only know one other person that's done it, but they did it after me. So the entire time I was fighting to stay in and this, that, and the other. And yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for a good old, uh, president Barack Obama, when I met him, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't. I mean, I had the, I did what I was supposed to do, but like he pushed the envelope for me. You know, he wrote me a letter and stuff and to stay in and yeah, when I presented that letter to the army, they was just like, "Yeah, well, <laughs> well, Obama said it's okay." So yeah, <laughs> so, right. He see he sees something in your boy, so I guess y'all need to too. So mm-hmm. yeah. So how did you segue into? Because you didn't return. Did you return to like recruiting? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I just returned. Well, so first they denied it, and then. Um, I had several people that I had met and, you know, that was on my side and they helped me get a formal board. And I went into the board and proved why I should stay in and this, that, and the other. And they said I could. So like legit, I stayed in and they sent me to like the armpit of America. They sent me to Arkansas. So I went to Arkansas. Yeah. I went to the Arkansas. Armpit of America. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I hate that place. Is that bad? <laughs> Man, oh my goodness. I've I've never heard in my life somebody say, we're going to go on vacation. Yeah, let's go to Little Rock, Arkansas. 
Dope. No. The only thing so, I heard about Little Rock is that marathon with that big old medal. Yeah, that's it. And then the <laughs> yeah, and then you know the Clinton Library because mm -hmm. that's where Clinton is from. Yeah, he's other from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't. Yeah, man. I don't know. I got some really good friends that do Iron Man. That's from that's some they're in BTA. That's from Arkansas, and I I give them I give them crap all the time. But yes, I went to recruiting in Arkansas and did that. And uh, while in Arkansas is when I somehow got into skeleton bobsledding. Um, they called me and it was like, hey, would you like to come to a camp and do this and do that? And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll go. Why not? And then I find out it's skeleton bobsledding, which I'm from Texas. I didn't even know what that was. Little did I know you're laying on your stomach head first going down an ice track going 70 plus, 70 plus miles an hour. Mm -hmm. um, but I did that and got good at it and made the national team and then was like, ranked third in the world and um, was doing that full time and and doing recruiting. So I became like a little local celebrity in, in Arkansas, which didn't mean much because it was in Arkansas. But uh, yeah, um, listen, getting ready to Arkansas go to people, they're going to come for you. <laughs> you hey, they, listen, they could do it because they don't want to be in Arkansas either. They just... <laughs> Still, they just stuck there because of family. If they could leave, they would. Ain't nothing in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so preparing for the Olympics and then all of a sudden, like the year of the Olympics, I mean, there's like a lot of people dying and stuff. We were supposed to go to, uh, uh, I think it was Pia Chang or yeah, something like that, Korea, something like that. But um, there was like a couple of people had died and then they was just like, yeah, there's no way, there's no way we can let you go down this track anymore because I was the only I, so I was the first and the only person to ever do it that sport with one arm so imagine mm -hmm. imagine being in a roller coaster with with no seat belt and you're just in a seat going it's oh, like I've taking seen all these it. I, it looks crazy yeah <laughs> I so didn't even I, get I'm on that thing and go down the first time like what goes through your mind like mm-mm a lot of stuff that I did, I was like, you know what? I've already lost the arm. What's the worst that could happen? When people started flying off the track and dying, then I was just like, oh, yeah, I need to think about this. But when they told me, like, my, I could no longer do it, I wasn't even mad. I was like, that's cool. Because in the midst of training for the Paralympics, or the actual, not the Paralympics, for, in the midst of training for the Olympics for that sport, mm -hmm. um, that's when I did my first half Ironman. Like a friend of mine invited me to go to Augusta um, and was like, hey, do you want to do a triathlon? I was like, yeah, that's cool. Because I had been swimming and running and biking and all this stuff. So I was like, yeah, I mean, a triathlon, how hard could that be? I had no idea what an Ironman was. I had no idea what a 70.3 was. Mm -hmm. So when I get there, uh, they're telling me, they, like, they're like, hey, you're going to need a wetsuit. But I need a wetsuit for it, bro. Ain't we just gonna swim in a pool? He's like, no, nah, man, we about to. Yeah, he was like, no, nah, we swimming in a river. I was like, hold on. I never even. I've never swam in open water. I was mm -hmm. like, what are you talking about? He was like, yeah, this is a half Ironman. So I get on my phone and I was just like, oh, what? Wait a, wait, hold on. That's Google. Man, <laughs> Google was like, yeah, you don't got yourself in some mess. That's what Google said. 
Wait, isn't Augusta but, the one that takes you practically down the river? Yeah. So let me tell you about that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah, that's what it's supposed to do when you have two arms propelling you down the river. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like they 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 try to give me the whole bag of potato chip. Like you could put a bag, like put it in the river and it go. Yeah, man. Yeah, they fail to mention like when you weigh like 200 pounds, that slows the process down. That slows gravity down. Like you're not moving as fast as you think. Yeah. So and I had never put on a wetsuit before, so I'm hyperventilating. I'm scared. I'm the guy that was swimming with me was like, "Man, turn over on your back." I was like, "Listen," I was like. I ain't turning over on no back in no open water. <laughs> and he stopped me. He was like, all right, let's just stop. He was like, listen, they've never found anybody at the bottom of a river, a lake, or an ocean with a wetsuit on. I looked at him like, I was like, what? Well, that is true because you float in a wetsuit. Yeah. You didn't know that, though. I didn't. And I'm looking at him like, that is a I, I legit... <laughs> a white dude and it was white people that invited me so it's not a problem but i'm looking at him like bro you you trying to sabotage my life because what you said doesn't even make sense like that sounds stupid (laughs) but we finally like and i wasn't supposed to do the whole thing i was just supposed to do a relay i was only supposed to do the swim and the bike so i legit wore vans to the uh to the um transition area the guy that was going to do my run was uh, uh, a double leg amputee. So he was just going to do the run. I get the transition. This dude is nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. So I'm like, so the guy that swam, the guy that uh, swam with me, he was doing the whole thing. He was like, okay, well, I'll get word to him, to the team, and they'll find him and get him. Maybe he's on the course somewhere, or maybe he had to go to the bathroom, but we'll, they'll let him cut through and just meet you. So I was like, all right. So I put on my Vans with no socks, and I'm running. And as soon as you come out of transition, I think like maybe a quarter of a mile into the run, there's a there's an aid station, there's a thing. And this dude goes, are you, are you about to do this in Vans? I was like, I'm not supposed to be doing the run. And he, he took off his running shoes and gave them to me. And I took off. Like, I'm running. I'm trotting or whatever. I'm, like, doing my thing. Or, no, no, no. No, that was after the bike. So I did the bike. And then, yeah, went put on my Vans and did all this. And, yeah, like, I get to the first aid station. The guy gives me his shoes. I'm running. Like, and I never felt this type of pain because I've never done all three together. Mm-hmm. Like, and not knowing that I'm gonna have to run, I'm on the bike just getting it. Like I'm trying to, like I'm trying to make up for the swim time. The dude that's with me, he was like, "Oh man, like you're really, like he was like you're really moving." I'm passing people. I'm gassed up, like feeling myself, and had a, a little did I know I was about to die on this run. Like it was crazy, but got on the run and got somebody else's shoes. This dude meets me at like mile eight. And I looked at him like, nah, brother, you can go on. wherever you kids came from. You can just go back. You know, you're not like, going to get in the medal at the finish line. Shoot. Nah. <laughs> I was like, there is no, I was like, there is no way I'm giving up this chip. So wow, I just kept hey, it moving. Where the heck was he? Something about 
the excuse was his hands were overheating, so they had to go find him some gloves to put ice in his gloves, which made no sense. That had nothing to do with the running. I was baffled. So I was like, all right. So I just kept running. I kept doing my thing, and I finished. And that that was the birth of my love for triathlon. Like that day, because it was so hard. I just remember I when I crossed the finish line, like I was crying. Like I legit was crying. I had never done anything like that. Never mm-hmm. wanted to. I never had a desire to do anything like that. I felt like when people were telling me at the, uh, like at the little, symposium or the little thing that they had before the races like people were telling me the distances and I was like man who why would why do people do this this is dumb so that was your foray into triathlon a 70.3 most people start with sprints you just went like right into the big dog the half yeah I went yeah I went right into it um I found me a another half I did what did I do what was the other half I did I did it was another, it was a half, but it wasn't Iron, it wasn't Ironman represented. It was by Rev 3, but it was a half distance. So I did that. And then um, I ended up doing the DC full Texas or the Maryland, Texas and Chattanooga. And then I went back and did uh, another Augusta. Um, and then that's when I switched over to Sprint. And to this day, I think half or fools are easier than sprint triathlons sprint, i was we were talking about Sage from varlo offline but he was we were talking about that the same thing like sprints your adrenaline is like going the whole time for that short amount of time but when you're in a, like a long haul race you have you can chill you're not chilling on the bike but you have that time you know just to be mellow yeah. and get it done yeah, but you got, sprints you you're like on it yeah, you get like a transition bag. You can eat, put on mm-hmm. socks. You can take your time. <laughs> you can you can make a mistake, but make up for it. You can legit do like a walk run scenario if you need to. Mm-hmm. You're not in any big rush. You you have this time cap. Sprint is not like that. Like my heart rate, I'm in zone five the entire time. I look at my heart rate, and every time, like I'm always, I look at Training Peaks and Zwift and or uh, Strava and my heart rate is just like through the roof. It stays like at at least 190 the entire time. Like yeah. just there. So yeah. So you're still active duty in the army right now, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So what is your job today in the army? So uh there's a program in the army that not hardly anybody knows. It's called the uh world-class athlete program. And basically, um, when you have the potential to um, turn pro or go to the Olympics. The main objective is go to the Olympics. But when you have the potential to make the Olympics and you've made a development or a national team, the army basically comes to you and is like, hey, we're going to support you and we're going to, we want you to be an athlete. All we want you to worry about is being an athlete, representing the army as a soldier and an athlete. And, you know, we're going to provide you the tools to get to the Olympics. And I mean, that's that's what I'm doing. I mean, soldier athlete. And they pay you to be a soldier athlete? Yeah, and I get paid pretty good. I mean, I've been in the Army for a good little bit. So 23 years, you know what I mean? So that's, you know, that's like being in what the them, What the benefits look like? Man, A1. 
pay one. I mean, I get I get housing allowance, so that doesn't come out of my pocket. They pay for that. Um, they pay for my equipment. I mean, I just I got two brand new bikes this year that are both of them are twenty thousand dollars plus with all the stuff, the wheels and all that stuff. And they pay for some of my races, not not all of them, but they pay for most of my races. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm injured, I'm allotted the opportunity to take advantage of veteran uh, nonprofit organizations. So they give me money. Um, and then, you know, local races, when they offer a bag, you know, for podium, like money, I can keep that. So I'm in a very, very uh, unique You're in a good, a good deal here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a great it's a great position to be in for sure. So, did they invite you into the world class athlete program, or did you inquire about it? Um, so actually, I had a friend who is missing a leg, and I did my first para race was national. Like, I happened to qualify for it because I've been doing Ironmans, and it was my first short course, mm-hmm. and. I didn't see him the whole time, but when I crossed the finish line, he was like, bro, like you legit just took fourth place and you've never done this race. He was like, that's, he was like, have you been training? Yeah. He was like, have you been training for this? I was like, nah, man, I've been doing Ironmans. And I was like, I don't even really train for that. I was like, I'm still running a recruiting station in the armpit. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, America. Uh, yeah. So uh, I went back to Arkansas and they transferred me to um, Fort Knox, Kentucky, which is another armpit. So I'm in Fort Knox in the middle of nowhere, all these crazy places. But so I'm there and they send me to San Antonio to go talk. Like I, they love me. Like the recruiting command loves me. But I asked them, I was like, hey, I want to inquire about this place. Can I? fly to San Antonio. They was like, yeah, we'll fly you there. So I was like, okay. So they flew me there, got me a rental, got me a hotel. I met my friend. They took me in. I talked to the boss and I was like, yeah, I was like, I ain't gonna lie to you. I don't know if I'm going to make any kind of team, but if you provide me the opportunity, I promise you, like, I won't let you down. Like you'll get a hundred percent of me. And if I don't make it, it's just going to be because I'm older, I'm aging and there's somebody out there that's younger and faster than me that that are beaten. I was like, but along the way, I was like, I promise you, like, I will make headlines and I'll make the army proud. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll be that representative that, you know, the army needs. I'll be that good news story. I'll be the face. So he was just like, yeah, I'll give you a year to make some team. And my first like gave me the opportunity and my first year was like, it was it wasn't anything I expected. Like you it's like you immediately turn pro. It's like going from novice to pro immediately because your whole life changes. You get all this money and now your job is to train and race. I wasn't used to that. And I was I kept getting injured. Um I couldn't race. I think my first year I only raced twice because I was injured the, the rest of the time. Um and it's just it wasn't it just wasn't good. And I had hit my 20 year mark and in 20 in the military, 20 years, you can retire. I was like, man, I'm just going to take my little hundred percent, my 20 year retirement, <coughs> excuse me. And I'm going to run. 
<coughs> and yeah, <coughs> excuse me, I was expecting him to let me go. So I go in, I'm talking to him. And he was like, yeah, so, you know, you didn't hit any of your benchmarks. And, you know, this is just not what we expected. You know, what do you want to do? I was like, well, I'm at 20 years. And I was like, and I'm 38. Yeah, I think I'm going to go on and call it quits. And uh, he was like, well, when you, when you, you know, when you retire, what you going to do? I was like, I'm going to still pursue this. I was like, this is like, I'm hooked on this sport. So I'm still going to do the sport. And because I'm pair, I still have opportunity. He was like, oh, well, we'll keep you. I was like, all right. So the next year I raced, made nationals, did a couple of world races. So now I'm, I'm starting to hit my benchmarks. I'm starting to become a little known. People are starting to recognize who I am. And, uh, now is when because I'm doing these bigger races. Now I'm starting to now I'm I'm looking around. I'm just like, and I'm like, am I the only black dude? Hmm. I was like, nah. So I asked the director. I went to her. I was like, hey, so uh, is there any other black people that do this race? And she was like, Mike, you're the only one. She was like, I'm surprised you're just now asking me. She was like, you're you're the only one in the country. She was like, you may be the only one in the world. I was like, really? She was like, yeah. So me, I don't particularly pay attention to that. But when she brought it to my, when I started, I started noticing. And then I started noticing how people were treating me. And then I was just like, okay. I was like, all right. And only one time where it was really noticeable where the race director came up to me and was like, hey, so what station do you want to be at? I was like, station? He was like, yeah. He was like, aren't you volunteering? I was like, no, I'm racing. He was like, no, for real. I was like, are you asking me because I have one arm? He was like, well, no. I was like, oh, so you for real asking me because I'm black. Wait, this is for a triathlon? Yes. So our Paralympic races are separate from the pros, but we race Uh at the same venue on the same day. We just race at a different time. But see, there's no pro, there's no pro black athletes or pro triathletes. There's one as uh Max Max Fennel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's one, but he doesn't even do it anymore. Nope. Which is that's a whole nother conversation. I'm so <laughs> I'm so disappointed with that. Like, I don't know. I, I mean, we're fr- we're friends on Facebook. We've had a conversation and I For you to be a pioneer, turn pro and then stop. Like, what was the objective? Like, that was that that, that blows my mind. But anyway, so <clears throat> even when all the races together, I'm still the only one. So, um, how could you not notice though? Even when when I go to races, even running races, like I say hey to every black person I know because there ain't that many of us there. And triathlon is even worse. I've been yes. to a race where it, I, I could count on my hand how many of us it was there. We're at the race. So I think it's because um, because I at that time I was so new to the sport that my nerves were so bad. Like I would legit fly in, 
get my stuff together and I would go do my whatever my coach wanted me to do. <clears throat> and I was just in a different world. I was just in my own space. So I didn't, I just, it just, I just didn't notice. I mean, and I'm not groomed like that either. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't raised like that. I wasn't, I'm not like that. I'm not that guy. Uh, so I did, it just didn't dawn on me until I started to be treated like I was the only black person in this sport. So, um, <clears throat> but in the, in the, in lieu of all that, like I'm doing my thing, I'm hitting my benchmarks and, um, it became, a, it, be, it became a good situation. Um, 2020 was my, I mean, best year for training, but now more than ever, it's an issue. Like, um, even with the sport, all these sports is trying to be inclusive and divert, you know, include diversity. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I feel like it's more of a problem now for me personally than it ever has been. Um, I was on <clears throat> a podcast with uh, uh, an organization um, that I'm belong to and. I don't want to. I don't want to say their name, so I don't want them to be all act crazy. But I was on the podcast, and <clears throat> a lady asked me. She was like, um, "You know, how? Do, wh- what is it like for you in triathlon?" I was like, "Honestly, I was like, uh, I'm gonna go another direction with this." And I told her, she was like, "Yeah, please go ahead." And I was like, "Being black in triathlon is like being a black man in America." And she just kind of looked. We we're on a Zoom call. There's like 60 of us on there. <clears throat> I'm the only black dude. And she was like, what do you mean? I was like, so think of it. I was like, everybody on this call is white. I'm the only black man on this. Not the only black person, but I'm the only black man. Mm-hmm. I was like, I fear getting pulled over. I fear being in public and something happens, then everybody's going to look at me. I was like, not only that, but I, I'm full of tattoos and I have goatee. I'm from Texas. I'm from South Texas. I'm as Southern as they get. I was like, but until I open my mouth or you talk to me, you don't know how educated I am. I was like, but along with that, I get treated like I'm the only black person in this sport. And she's like, well, what about now? Like you're on this call. So like I am, I'm, I'm in on USAT ambassadorship team, right? And I'm the team captain. So I'm the team captain of that ambassadorship team. I'm also man of the year for USAT. <clears throat> so my question was, and I'm very appreciative of all that. And I've worked my butt off to get to where I'm at now at this elite status. Like I race all elite races now and I have all this sponsorships and people doing all this. But my question is, is if we wasn't going through what we're going through right now, had George Floyd, had that not happened had america not witnessed him being murdered would i be in this position right now would i even be, would i be on the ambassadorship team would i be the captain would i had gotten man of the year you see what i'm saying like mm-hmm. and and you know because, what There's, these companies are like trying to <laughs> fit into today but they're still so ignorance so of what's behind. really yeah. going on yeah. you know and and it's i mean i can understand some people where they live in middle america and they don't see any black people but if you're from like a mid to big city how can you not know 
Like you're, you're walking around with blinders on. There's no way that these people do not know what's going on. They just choose not to look at it or be involved in the situation, which is sad, but it's good that you're, you're getting these opportunities because now your voice is being heard in these spaces and that's, what's lacking. So, so, okay. So I'm glad you said that. So with that being said, with these opportunities that I have, it's almost like a double-edged sword, right? Like, mm-hmm. am I am I playing the token? You see what I'm saying? Like, I you have to. I I feel like I have to be careful with that because I'm not I'm not trying to be anybody's token at all. Like, that's not the role I'm playing because at the end of the day, like, I've accomplished way more than most two armed men have in my life in this short time span that I've been an armed amputee. But I'm not trying to be a token. At the same time, I do want to take advantage of these opportunities because, like you said, I want my voice to be heard. But when I have this platform and expressing my views, our views on behalf of us and not only triathlon, but in running, I have to be careful on how I articulate to them our point of view and where we're coming from, because it's so easy to get labeled as an angry black man. Mm-hmm. Right. It's mm-hmm. so it that's so easy. And it's so easy for them to be like, oh, well, he's still complaining. And we done, we, we're trying to give him everything. And he's still complaining. <clears throat> so you got to you, you know got to it's a gift and a curse. Yeah, it really it is. is. Because it we is. the reason why we're in the rooms now is not a good reason, but it is good that we are there because, I mean, I just saw an ad, which is ridiculous, for Gucci, right? It was mm-hmm. a Jamaican. It was supposed to be the flag of the Jamaican colors. Did you see that? Yep. <laughs> yep. It, was, it yep. was like the, the, it was the Guyana flag colors. I'm like, who is in the room in these companies? And that's yep. the problem. We are not in the room to say that this is not correct. So yeah, I understand yep. what you're saying by you not wanting to be that token, but it's, I like that you are, and you know, you can put a positive spin on this and bring your perspective because you're not this, the poster boy for all black people and men in America, you know, you're speaking for you. <clears throat> Right. And I and I don't want to be because there's so many different viewpoints. We have so many different uh, experiences. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I don't want to be the voice for everybody, but I would like to be the starting point. You know what I mean? Like, I would like to say my piece and be like and be able to pass it off and be like, so this is my experience. But let's go talk to Soj from Barlow and see what his experience is. Because I guarantee you, my experience is so completely different. Me and him have had a couple yeah. of conversations. Our experiences, yeah. the way we grew up, not even the same. Um, <clears throat> and how we grew up, you know what I mean? So, and our experiences, I'm from the South, so it's different. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I do try to utilize, utilize the platform, but I also think sometimes they give us positions and they give us these opportunities to shut us up. Right. So like mm-hmm. they just had the endurance exchange and I just knew I was going to be a part of that endurance exchange and I wasn't got it. 
so I'm the team captain and I'm the man of the year, but I don't get invited to the endurance exchange. I had an issue with that. So I shot an email to the, to the people I was like, Hey, so very articulate. I shot it to him, let it rest. Um, then I just started <clears throat> really noticing stuff. Like I belong to um, a triathlon program that specialized in, you know, it was uh, a veteran nonprofit that was a triathlon program. It was a, like a starter program. <clears throat> and I just remember, <clears throat> excuse me, I was like, I did everything I could to promote them and making posts and my social media presence is huge. So I was like putting them on my, doing everything and then I noticed, I was like, I was calling people that I me? knew. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was calling people. I was like, hey, so did you just get this grant? And they was like, yeah, they gave me $5,000. So <clears throat> I'm calling people and they're getting stuff. So I I do my little grant. I get an email back immediately like, yeah, so we don't have the funding and we haven't had the funding for this for like quite some time. So I immediately, like I threw a fit and I'm not gonna lie. Like I, I didn't use choice words, but I immediately told him, I was like, listen, I'm not, I don't appreciate this. And I was like, I know for a fact of X, Y, and Z. I was like, so at this particular time, I'm going to remove myself from your program. I was like, please don't reach out for me for nothing else. I don't need you guys. Like I'm fine where I'm at. You haven't done anything anyway. So that's fine. And they immediately went to social media and like, try to they didn't shun me but they tried to do this whole black lives matter campaign i was like man you guys are out of control i hate that out of control i really hate that <laughs> and you know what you know who's in it for the right and wrong reasons because there was a season like we're ebbing and flowing and you know we're in the downturn of it now and you can see how companies have switched you know they jumped on the bandwagon and they're like off of it they're like we did our post we put our black squares up we did this and you know we're done with it so you kind of know pay, pay, who yeah pay, i mean to align yourself with now if you pay attention to commercials just when you're watching tv if it's not an interracial couple it's a it's it's something about black culture but it's mm -hmm. a a white company doing it and you can tell that there was not not one person of color in that room when they made that commercial for example i saw the louis vuitton commercial the other day for the first time and <clears throat> i'm looking at this commercial like who did this like i didn't see it what commercial it's a, it's a Louis Vuitton commercial and like they're doing like some kind of it's supposed to be like some kind of it's supposed to be a, an African culture type dance to to some crazy music. And then they have the two they went and found the two darkest black people they could find. I was just like, is this real right now? It's, These companies it's, it's are going to misappropriate <laughs> our culture until the end of time. And we, we, if we keep supporting them, they're going to keep doing it. And that's the problem. Uh, that's yeah. the problem right there. It's, Look, we going off on a, uh, we going down a yeah. long road here. <laughs> yeah. But I, so I will say this, I will say this. What's going on right now is it is because it's popular, even mm -hmm. within <clears throat> our sport. Right. So it, with, within the sports that we do, um, it's it's popular to be inclusive and to diversify. It's it's popular. That's what's going on. Mm -hmm. 
So mm-hmm. like, um, if you notice, like these companies are posting what they're going to post, but there's no, there's no action behind it. And mm-hmm. the people that they are choosing, they're choosing people that they feel like, okay, like if we choose them, if we choose this group, they're, ju- they're subtle enough, just enough to not make a lot of noise, but they they can represent us. You see what I'm saying? So when that happened to me, that's that's one of the reasons why I created my nonprofit, my own foundation, because I wanted to be a part of change, but I wanted to do it my way. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want anybody to tell me how to run my organization. I'm going to do it the way I want to. And we're going to create change the way I see fit amongst like our culture. You know what I mean? And using the sports brings everybody together. You know what I mean? No matter what race, creed, background, whatever, everybody comes together when it comes to a sporting event. <clears throat> so I'm using the sport of triathlon and endurance running to bridge that gap. And I mean, so far it's it's been it's been remarkable. I mean, I'm getting the opportunity to do it and I'm doing it the way I want to. So and your foundation is called Swim Bike Run for Equality. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about that, but you already started talking about it. So <laughs> I knew I knew I had to. We had to like get off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that next. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. So what's your what's your like goal of this foundation? What's the mission? So my goal is to it is to uh, I want to show people what, like what true inclusiveness like to be inclusive means and what diversity really looks like. So when you hear inclusiveness and diversity, people automatically take it to the race. Like off top, when you hear those two words, <clears throat> all these organizations, that's what they're doing. It's they're trying to involve people of color, right? Well, absolutely, I want to do that because I, I do want to bridge that gap. But to me and to my board, that's not all that it means. It means race, religion, whoever or whatever you identify yourself like it doesn't matter everybody should get the opportunity to be who they are right Mm -hmm. it's just about being a good human so that's what we're about and the reason why I did that instead of becoming the pro-black organization like I originally wanted to is because one of my good friends who is one of those girls she's from uh Wisconsin or she's from like Wisconsin or something like that. And she's white, not a black person in sight, but me and her are really close. We were super close and she's a para athlete. And she, when that George Floyd incident happened, she called me hysterically crying and she wanted to do something and she wanted to say something, but she didn't want to offend anybody. And she wanted to know what she could do. And she made a comment on Facebook and people just drug her for it. Like, Cause you know, the whole white privilege thing was super, it's super huge. And they was, they was just dragging her. And I went to her defense and I was like, y'all can't, why are y'all dragging this young lady? Be, just because she doesn't know. If you don't live, you're, if you don't live, if you live in that life and you are not experiencing anything else, then how are you supposed to know? That's like mm-hmm. asking you, how does it feel to be rich? Well, I don't know because I don't make over a hundred and some thousand dollars a year. So I don't know. I have bills for real, for real. So Mm -hmm. how are you supposed to know? So that bothered me. So 
me and her got together and we wanted to create a platform where people can educate and be educated, but do it on a, on a respectful manner. Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm all about just treating people with respect and dignity. You know what I mean? Like just be a good human. Um, don't crucify me because I don't know. I'm sorry. I didn't grow up like that. So educate me, show me, you know what I mean? So, um, and that's what that's what we did. And before, like legit, I added another person, Lolly. She's a phenomenal person. She's a teacher in San Antonio. So before I knew it, like we had over a thousand members within like a month. So then wow. and it was prominent people on there. Like there's CEOs and people that I never even knew was on there, but they're <clears throat> reaching out to me and they're just like, hey, so, yeah, you really should think about making this a nonprofit. I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm a full-time athlete. I do not have time. I just don't have that kind of time. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. training every bit of like six to eight hours a day with one day of recovery. My one day of recovery is not going to be trying to be messing with this. And I was like, I just don't have that time. So I talked it over with the two girls and they was like, yeah, we'll form a board. We'll add another person and we'll take care of it. They was like, Mike, you just be the face and you can speak when, you know, and you could be the president, this, that, and the other. You're the founder, but we'll take care of everything else. And it just clockwork. It just, the three young ladies that I had, I have on my board, they just, I mean, within two months, we were a nonprofit. All the paperwork taken care of. And I, I was asking, I was asking questions. It take people years to become a nonprofit. And we did it in, within two months. Um, and it's just been a great experience. And we are providing like, you know, a platform for people to reach out and this, that, and the other. And um, we're creating like a, a kit right now for our own foundation with Zoop, um, which is, you know, a team I belong to. We added, uh, we added a, a brother on the team by Derek Britton. Do you know Derek? Mm-hmm. No, That's born in Derek. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's a good dude, man. Um, and I met Derek because I teamed up with Base out of Colorado and he had an issue with that and he let me have it like he messaged me yeah he messaged me and he let me have it i mean went up one side and down the other and then he said after he let me have it he told me to call him so i called him i was like listen man he was like no you listen he was like i've been in this sport way longer than you have and you have no idea what storm you're about to create and he just he schooled me like mm-hmm. he, he schooled me and I listened, we talked for like a couple of hours and he schooled me. And from that point on, every time I was getting ready to make a decision, I would call him, I would call him. And then I would put him on zoom call for our team meetings. So finally I was just like, I mean, why don't you just be on this board, man? Like, why don't you just be the vice president? Like I kind of need you right now. And mm-hmm. he accepted it like right there on the spot. Like, so, and he's a zoo ambassador as well. So now that I have him and, I mean, it's it's been cool. It's been a great situation. You know, we're we have big plans and um, you know, my goal for 2022 is we're gonna create an ambassador team and um so we're gonna have our own ambassador team like you know, Zoo and um we're gonna sponsor uh three uh three people of color. So one woman, one man, and then one I'm gonna go find a pair of athlete. So I won't be yeah. the only one. So we're gonna mm-hmm. fully sponsor them to do races and we're going to get them bikes because I have a deal with uh, Felt. So we're going to get them bikes and get them going. And 
whatever diff, whatever discipline they want to do, whether it's sprint, Olympic, full half, you know, we're going to, we're going to do that. And then, you know, of course, you know, Derek is a runner, just like uh, Lolly, they're both, you know, endurance runners. So we're going to create a running program. <clears throat> and so we're going to have a separate endurance running program. And then we're going to sponsor three other athletes on that end. And we're just going to, you know, try to make the sport grow. Well, it sounds like you're, you will be doing big things with your nonprofit in the future. I'm looking forward to seeing what it's going to become. And on that note, I could talk to you all day. I know, I know. All day. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to wrap up this interview because, you know, folks got a short attention span. They, they might have clicked out by now, but not oh, after yeah. your heroin, not after your harrowing story because you had me on the edge <laughs> of my seat. I, I loved every minute of it. And it's it's just amazing to see what you have become after that experience. I mean, not many people to bounce back. That's why I asked you the mental question because mentally that can like just kill people. And, you know, you came out on the right side of it and you're doing good and you're setting a great example for others that are going to come up behind you. So I really commend you for that. And it was just great talking to you. It's the first time we chatted, yeah. you know, and yeah, it was just sure. a good yeah. conversation. Yeah, I see. We've been friends on social media for a hot second. A long too. time. You know, the black triathlete world is this big. So, like, we all yeah. know each other. But, yeah. yeah, long time. But, yeah, it was great having you on the show. Um, when, you know, you get those ambassador programs going, definitely send me the information and I'll put it Absolutely. out there. Because, you know, athletes are always looking. Triathlons are expensive. You know, oh, we yeah. make it look good and easy, but people, you don't know, like triathlons are expensive. All of the oh, gear yeah. we have to buy, the bike. Especially I remember, <laughs> listen, I never did a away triathlon because I didn't want to pay to ship my bike with me. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's expensive and mm -hmm. people don't realize that so when they're when we get opportunities to get sponsorships it's you know we have to let our community know because they're not going to let us know right you know? yeah absolutely yeah and that's i mean that's one of the things like throughout this whole time and developing relationships that's one of the reasons why i want to do an ambassadorship program because i've developed all these relationships and i develop a relationship with bike flights i know me i hate flying with my bike like I hate standing there at that conveyor belt waiting for my bike to come down like, oh, my goodness. Like, I have no idea what this bike is going to come out looking like. And, yeah, mm -hmm. I hate that feeling. So, you know, develop a relationship with bike flight. So I ship like my bike every time now. So and I've met people that don't even know about it. Like people don't I know that. You can heard ship. Of, there's another one as <clears throat> well. Right. That they pick up. Your, you bring them your bike. They dismantle it and ship it and put it back together. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah. So bike flight, that's what you do. You take your bike to like your local bike shop. They do everything for you and they mm -hmm. ship, they, they ship it from your bike, from your shop to a local bike shop where the race is going to be. And then by the time you get there, it's already put together. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And you just, bam, do it again. And it, that's it what people expensive. like me need who can't even change a flat tire. <laughs> Listen, I need, I don't know how many tire camps I've been in. I still cannot change a flat tire. And if I get a flat tire, I tell people all the time, they're like, man, you don't ride with like an extra inner tube. What do I look like? Come on, man. 
Hey, wait, I have one and I, I have the whole kit, you know, in the back, but I, I'm nah. SOL if I get a flat tire on the road somewhere. <laughs> I had a dude try to show me how to change a tire with my feet and my hand. I was like, listen, brother, if I <laughs> ever get a flat tire, yeah, if I ever get a flat tire, the last thing you're going to see me do is be on the side of the road barefooted trying to change the tire. If I get a flat, I'm done. I'm a call a SAG vehicle. We're going to the house. It's a wrap. Oh my God. That's like my my nightmare. That's why I never bike alone. I bike with someone that can change my flat and get one. <laughs> Smart. Yep. Smart. Yep. All right. So I want to thank you again, Mike, for being on the Runway podcast. I will leave all of your socials down below so my listeners can follow you. And that's it. You have any, anything else you want to add? Uh, I appreciate you having me and I appreciate what you do. You know, it's platforms like this, man, that, you know, people run across or they hear about and it encourages them to get out and, you know, do get outside their, their box. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. yeah, I definitely appreciate you and what you do. And I appreciate you having me. Of course. All right. So we will chat another time. Sounds like a plan. I would like to thank Michael for being on the Runway podcast. Did his story have you on the edge of your seat like it did me? (laughs) If you're listening, I want you to watch this on YouTube when it drops the following Tuesday so you can see my facial expressions and so you can make those facial expressions right along with me because his story was just Oh my God, unbelievable. And I've been following him for a long time. We're both black triathletes. The black triathlete space is very small and I never knew his entire story. So this was the first time that I heard it as well. And oh my God, he is just such an inspiration. It's been amazing what he has been able to do in the sport of triathlon. And I just wish him a whole lot of luck. So All of his details will be down below, so be sure to follow him on Instagram. Look out for his nonprofit organization. They are going to be doing great things uh, coming soon. And if you are a triathlete, definitely hit him up. He is a wealth of knowledge, and he is willing to share and mentor other athletes, which is great because not everyone is that nice (laughs) in the sporting world. So... Again, I want to thank you for tuning into the show. Please come back next week to see what extraordinary athlete I will be featuring next. And I will catch you on the next one. Later. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Be sure to subscribe to The Run Wave on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. It would really help me out. If you are a runner that has a story to tell and you would like to be on the show, you can email hello at therunwave.com or send us a DM on Instagram to The Run Wave. See you next time. Yeah.